I read a, a book last year at the beginning of the year, and uh, in it was a, a line that I've not forgotten, and I don't think I'll ever forget, but it was this, this really true statement that I had seen, but I just never articulated, and it was that nobody accidentally drifts into spiritual health, maturity, or spiritual growth. We don't just accidentally find ourselves um, as you know, mature Christians or healthy. You can apply that, I think, to you know, your, your physical health or anything in your life, is if you want to grow or become healthy or become mature in anything, it takes um, some effort. It takes kind of some strategery as well, some some, you know, some of you got it. You, you need a plan. And so um, we've been for, I think this is our sixth one, we've been doing these devotional guides. You're probably sitting on one or you have the opportunity to sit on one. And um, for those of you who are just joining us or, or you're, you're just hopping in at the beginning of this or you've been around for a while, I want to encourage you, if you don't have a plan for spiritual growth or you don't have a Bible reading plan or anything like that, uh, I'm not sure if it gets easier than this. Um, so I want to encourage you, we, we put work into it. Each week we'll go along with um, our, what we're preaching on. And so it starts this week. There's, if you open up, you can see the theme for this week, for this week's church that we're studying. There are uh, scriptures every day you could read that correspond to the big idea. And there's some quotes in there. There's some study hints. And then there's, some pr- there's a prayer. And then there's some um, reflection questions you can jump in with other people. I encourage you to grab a copy. If you're a digital person, we have them online as well. I know many people listen in from around the country, um, surprisingly, and uh, I do. We get emails occasionally from different states, and so you can go to our website and get it there. Um, I want to begin with a quick story about a friend of mine. I'll, I'll leave his name. I'll, I'll, he'll rename, remain anonymous. Um, he's been in the ministry for 27 years. He's planted multiple churches. He's a primary leader in a faith uh, group that, that you've heard about. And uh, this summer, he took a, I think, a three-month sabbatical with his family, and he had never taken time off for the ministry. He'd just gone after a ministry assignment after ministry assignment through the highs and lows, being on the front row seat of the worst days of people's lives, the best days of their lives, that emotional roller coaster that often comes with uh, ministry, if you ever have known about that. After 27 years, had never taken a significant amount of time off. And, and, and hit, you know, probably not even a Sabbath a whole lot of times. And so he took this three-month time. And in the early fall, I connected with him, and I, I asked him, hey, man, what was your big takeaway? Like, what did you learn about yourself and about the Lord after 27 years of just going, going, going? What did you hear? And he said that basically the lesson was he learned that he preferred to work for the king than to be with the king. It's like, well, yeah, you went 27 years working out, taking delight in him. And that was just the big, that was a big Kairos moment he came away with, came away with was, you know, left to his own devices, he has no problem working hard for the king. It's kind of difficult for him to stop that and to just be with the king and just to love the king and to receive the love from the king and all that. And so um, that's kind of going to be the message for today. If you turn, if you have a Bible, would you turn to Revelation chapter 2? I know you all got out of bed this morning, just super anxious to jump into Revelation. I'm here to meet your needs. Um, This epiphany, we have nine weeks in the season of epiphany, and we're going to learn from the seven letters to the seven churches 
in Asia Minor in the first century, you know, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, if you're not familiar with any of those churches, I think you will be at the end of the winter. And last week we looked at Revelation chapter 1 to kind of set up what this season's going to be, what it's not going to be. If you've missed it, I encourage you to listen to it. Uh, I know opening the book of Revelation causes a lot of like PTSD in people who've been around church for a while because they're looking for the Tim LaHaye to come out of the corner. Um, and um, we addressed that last week. That's not where we're going with this. And if you have bigger questions on Revelation, um, we, I sat down this week with the Bible professor, Austin Cagle from Veritas College, who will be with us, I think, in two weeks or a week, week or two. And um, we just, I just sat down with him and for an hour, just lobbed questions at him. And we have that special podcast. It's on our podcast. You can get it. And then I sent out an email. If we have your email on file, we sent out an, an email on Friday with just a bunch of different resources. So if Revelation is kind of fuzzy to you, um, there are some good resources um, for you to get into. We're just going to focus on the first three, uh, first three chapters. We're already a chapter in. So let's go read this, and then we'll back up and give some context and dig in for what the Lord's saying to us today. These are the words of Jesus. Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands, which is an image from chapter one. Verse two, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate sucks to be them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You're getting it. Uh, Just so you know, when someone says, this is the word of the Lord, you say, thanks be to God. There you go, yeah. And it's actually the words of the Lord. It's the red letters. So I want to show you a map of Ephesus. Uh, it is in present-day Turkey. You can see down on the bottom right of the screen where uh, Jerusalem is. And you see Rome way over there. And just this was kind of the thrust of the early church, is Jesus said, go, make disciples of all nations, and they actually took him at his word. We kind of look at the Great Commission, think it's the Great Suggestion, they're like, all right, it's a great commitment, let's go. And you see, they actually were on their way to Rome. And if you read uh, uh, Acts, this is like Paul's thrust. I got to get to Rome, I got to get to Rome, I got to get to Rome. His um, kind of calling of his life is to go from Jerusalem and take the gospel all the way to the evil empire, Rome. And on the way, you see there's churches planted all along. So there's a church in Antioch, what we could read about in Acts, in Ephesus, and you know Philippi, uh, Corinth, you kind of know that Philippians, uh, Corinthians, Ephesians, you see where these letters in the Romans, where these letters in um, the New Testament come from, from all these cities. What's cool to know about Ephesus is it's right there on the water, and you can see how it acts 
um, kind of, you could kind of, you know, look into this, uh, um, but it acts as a hub, uh, a travel hub, because of where it's located. The uh, next slide is, I think, uh, a picture of what it looks like today, and it's beautiful. Look at that, on the water, I mean, ancient, ancient city, kind of in ruins, and uh, I got, we have one more picture of the theater that was there. Look at that. I mean, you could just stand there in the middle and talk without a microphone and, and people could hear you. So this is uh, an actual city. It's in Turkey. Um, and um, a, lot of, a lot of tours kind of go through there. You could do that if you're ever over there. Um, what's interesting to know about the city of Ephesus, which would help you to understand what Jesus is talking about, is there's three things that, that Ephesus had in abundance. They had wealth, they had culture, and they had corruption. Like this was Ephesus, very wealthy, very cultured because it's, um, it's like a hub of trade routes. And so with trade routes and with travel comes lots of different cultures, lots of different ethnic backgrounds, and lots of different languages. And, and so this is like really a melting pot, Ephesus was. And it was also a place of cor- corruption. I have a friend who's, who's been to, to, to Ephesus, and there's actually... A, um, on one of the roads, you could see, this is like early advertising, but they would engrave on, on the roads um, where you could find goods and services. And in one of the roads, he saw there's like a circle, which was the size of, of, of a coin. And then there was a person, and then there was an arrow. And what it was, was is if you want a prostitute, it costs this much and go that way. That's like in, engraved in the roads of Ephesus, you know crazy. And so you can see that's kind of the, the culture. Um, it was a strategic place to plant a church because of all the people that were coming and going. And Paul, if, you, if you've ever read Acts, Paul's like an ADD missionary before there was ADD. I mean, he just never stayed anywhere at long. But Ephesus, he stayed the longest. He stayed at least two years and three months, the scriptures say. Some scholars estimate it was probably around three years. It's the longest he stayed. Uh, so, so Ephesus was a church that Paul gave most of his attention to, um, and you can read of its planting and its explosive growth in Acts chapters 18, 19, and 20. I'll encourage you this week, if you're bored, read Acts 18 through 20. Even if you're not bored, you should read it anyway. It's good to know the history of this church. Now, here's what's crazy about this, the church in Ephesus. They had a who's who of pastoral staff. They had Apollos. They had Paul, they had Priscilla, Aquila, they had Timothy, Titus, and the Apostle John, who writes Revelation, the closest disciple to Jesus, ended his life pastoring in Ephesus. He was caring for uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus there. So presumably, Ephesus was Mary's church. You think her Bible study was popular? You know, like, good luck, Beth Moore. Everyone wants to go to the mother of Jesus' Bible study. Tell us about that virgin birth one more time. It's really incredible. I love, it. This, Ephesians is my favorite church because in all the scriptures, we don't have uh, a church that has more information that we can learn from than the church in Ephesus. As I said, we have its planting and its growth in Acts 18, 19, 20. Um, Paul writes to the Ephesian church with the book Ephesians, naturally. Um, it's believed that when he writes to Timothy and Titus, he's writing to them in Ephesus, so they're kind of unofficial epistles to that church. John writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from the pastoral desk of Ephesus. And of course, Jesus has his own letter that we just read to Ephesus. So like we know more about the the church in Ephesus than any church. And I, as a nerd, kind of like that. So um, we're going to 
jump into what Jesus has to say. And we introduced a grid last week that in case you forgot or in case you weren't here, I want to introduce to you. And it's we're going to be asking two questions. And I think these are just good questions to always ask. I dare you to ask them daily. Um, but it, we're going to at least ask them every Sunday for the, for the weeks of Epiphany. And that is, uh, Jesus, um, what is your word of affirmation for me? And second, what is your word of admonishment or correction? You know, we tend to prefer one of these over the other. Like, I, I tend to hear words of admonishment way before I hear words of approval just because of my personality and my upbringing. Uh, some people are the opposite. They hear all the encouragement and they're blind to the log in their eye. You know? So um, these, these are great questions. I want to encourage you to, to, um, to learn. So th- this is actually right here in Ephesians or in the, in the letter to Ephesians. So, verses 2 and 3. Here, the, we find seven affirmations from Jesus. It's crazy. And uh, this is one of the most well-known churches that gets ripped <laughs> in Revelation. But they have seven things that the Lord specifically celebrates them. He says, I know your works. Right here. So, apparently, they're not a country club. They're not a holy huddle. Like, they're actively busy in mission. He says, I know your toil. So that work came at a cost. We all have work that we do that's pretty easy. You know, like sweeping up a mess in the kitchen is not toilsome. You know, uh, you know tilling a garden might involve some sweat, okay? So he, he says, I not only know your works and your activity, but I know that it comes with a cost. You're laboring, you're sweating, you're working hard. Okay? They're, they're not shying away from the resistance that comes in working. The third thing he acknowledges is their patient endurance. There's this attitude of persistence. Like, we're not, we're not going to give up. We're going to keep doing. We're, we're going to be focused. We're going to be faithful. So he says, I know your work. I know that it costs you. And I know that your attitude is to keep doing it. The fourth thing he affirms is that they cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. So they're not just busy working, working hard, being persistent, but they actually care about holiness. They care about, you know, correct doctrine. They, 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 they believe that theology actually has an effect on your life and your relationships and that it should be serious. Some people like take that to the far extreme and they become, you know, Pharisees or crazy theological Nazis. Not, not these people. They were like, no, that's not the truth and we're not going to tolerate it. This is incredible. They worked, they worked hard, they were patient, and they took holiness and righteousness and sound doctrine very seriously. Fifth thing, which is really crazy to to think about. In the midst of all that, he says, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, which is code for you're being persecuted for my name, which was the case for the first 300 years in the early church. It was illegal. Rome legally crucified Christians. It wasn't against the law. Constantine changed it in like 320. But um, here's the thing. It's like you're working hard. You're patient. You're testing uh, false, offer, uh, false doctrines. And you're doing it in the midst of persecution. And you're, you're bearing for my name. They're pretty incredible people. Incredible people. You know, if you give any church a pass for like not working hard and not doing mission... It's like when you're being persecuted, like, I think you got enough to deal with. Not them. They're being persecuted and doing all this stuff. And then six, which amazes me because I got two kids and I wish this was me. You've not grown weary. You know, like 30 minutes after I woke up, I was already weary. 
from the two toddlers. I'm on my third cup of coffee. Welcome to parenting. This is crazy. They worked. They worked hard. They were patient. They didn't bear it with those who were evil. They were enduring persecution. And in the midst of all that, they're not tired yet. Pretty crazy. They have a high threshold of pain. And if we jump to verse 6, because that's 6, let's jump to verse 6, we find the seventh affirmation he gives them on the back end, which is he says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I'd hate to be them, because he says, I also hate them. Uh, We'll get to the Nicolaitans in a later letter, because they they show up again. We're not, for the sake of time, we're not jumping into what they were all about. Um, But basically what you need to know is they just perverted the gospel. They tried to, you know, add things to the gospel. So um, that's for, for this sake, all you know is they um, were trying to do some things theologically that weren't, that Jesus hated. Just, that's what it is. All right? Now, this incredible church. Like, I would like to be part of this church. Like, I'm a, I like to get things done, right? And I'm persistent, and I have a high threshold of pain sometimes. I'd love, and I care about sound doctrine and theology, and I love the idea of not growing weary. I would love to be in this church that had all these, you know, wonderful leaders that we know of, Timothy, Titus, Paul, Apollo, Priscilla, Aquila, Mary, John, like this would be incredible. Great, a cultured place, lots of wealth around, on the sea, beautiful. They got a, look at that theater in the first century. Wow, right? I'd like to be part of that church. From the outside, the church in Ephesus looks like they got it all together, right? I just spent like 10 minutes. <laughs> They're awesome. They are. What's cool about this is, as we looked at last week, is Jesus is in the midst of the seven churches, and it says he's got fire in his eyes, which is the scripture's way of saying he has x-ray vision. He can see through everything. And Jesus says, I see and I like all of these seven outward things that everyone sees. But Jesus sees things that we don't see, you know? Kind of with, with King David, we learned God looks at the outward, or man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart of this church, and he says, I have this one, one thing against you. He gives them an x-ray, and he sees they have a problem with their heart. They've abandoned their first love. They've lost their love. They're doing all of this stuff. They're working hard, and presumably some of them could be dying if they're bearing up for Christ's name in the midst of persecution in Turkey. Jesus says, but you're not doing it from a place of love for me. One, that's it. That's one sin. That's the word they get. You know, man, about six affirmations in, they probably thought, I think, yeah, we're feeling good about ourselves. And then, yeah, but you've missed the most basic Christian virtue, love. What is first love? I like G. Campbell Morgan, one of my favorite authors. He said, first love is the abandonment of all for a love that has abandoned all. And he's playing on the word abandon because he says you've abandoned your first love. First love is when you abandon everything for Jesus in response to his love in abandoning heaven and everything for you. And what, what, what Jesus says to them is, I miss you. You've, um, you've abandoned that love in which you first abandoned everything because I love you and I've abandoned everything for you. I left heaven. I didn't consider equality with God as something to be right. I've left, I left that for you. They, they did a lot 
for Jesus, but he missed their love. This, um, in other places in the New Testament, there's a theme, and, and uh, there's a lot of scriptures in the Bible that could be scary. My, the, the scripture in the Bible that scares me the most is Matthew chapter 7. Like, uh, if, if, if you know Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever told. If you've never read Matthew 5, 6, 7, you should do it. If you like good sermons, read Matthew 5, 6, 7. It doesn't get better than that. And if you know anything about art or music or movies, what you've got to know is in any type of presentation, the beginning and the end are very, very important, and the middle kind of works itself out, right? So you ever gone to a movie, and the beginning stinks, and you leave because it doesn't engage you? Or you see a great movie, and then like the ending... Or you're watching a good series like The Godfather and it just ends like a broken... Like, wait, wait, that ending was awful, right? Or like the, the show Lost, great series in the last season and a half, just was awful and just ended. Okay, so Jesus has a great beginning to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. He's also got a great ending. Matthew 7 is the ending of it. And, and he, he deal, deals with all this stuff. And uh, right before he gets to what we've all heard of is if you hear the words of mine and put them into practice, it's like building your house upon the rock, the winds... Come and crash, and the house stands. It's a great ending to a great sermon. Right before that, he tells this, this, this uh, story. I think he reveals what's going to happen. He says, catch this, Matthew 7. He says, on that day, on the, on the end of times, many will come to me, Jesus saying this. Many, not just a few, like a whole lot of people are going to come to me, and they're going to say, I don't know if you know this, Lord, Lord. Like they call him the double Lord. Not just, hey, Lord, I don't even know what that means. It's just, Lord, Lord, like they've doubled down. Like we're all in and some on you. Lord, Lord, we've done all these things in your name. We've cast out demons. We've healed the sick. We've done all these things in your name. And Jesus says to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. It's the scariest scripture to me. Because what Jesus is revealing at the end of the greatest sermon ever told in Matthew 7 is that it's entirely possible for a lot of people to come to him and to say, Lord, Lord, look at all this great stuff we did. I mean, you ever cast out a demon? You ever heal the sick? Pretty good stuff. And he'll say, you did it without me. You did it in my name, but I don't know you. We don't have a we don't relationship. We don't have fellowship. We don't have love. You didn't do it from a place of love. You did it for whatever motives, other reasons. And he'll say, depart from me. And he calls them, this is incredible, workers of evil or workers of iniquity. Wait, the the works they were doing were healing and casting out demons. But Jesus says, those are actually works of evil when you do them apart from me. As a pastor, it's the scariest, like, I do not want to approach the Lord on a day and say, Lord, Lord, look at this great thing we did in downtown San Antonio. And for him to say, who are you? It's not. And I don't think he's going to say that to me or us. But that keeps me sober, my friend. It should keep you sober, right? And uh, I think Jesus, he's saying the same thing. He's saying, you're doing all these great things, but you've abandoned your love. And it's so serious, he says, I will remove your lampstand if you don't repent. Like, Anyways, I'm not going to let you to continue to be a representative for my light if you continue to do good things, but not with love. It's not. Um, and you preach on that. Matthew 15, you go to Matthew 15, uh, which is one of the most well-known parables, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. 
which is a story of this uh, young son who says, hey, I want my inheritance early. I basically want you dead. And he goes off, and he, he ends up going to another country, and he squanders his wealth. And he comes to his senses, and he comes back home, and the father is on the front porch waiting. He goes after him. Well, there's another brother in the scene. He's the older brother on the back, and he's ticked off because he's been working this whole time for his father, and he's mad that his father is just lavishly loving and celebrating the return of the son who's not been working. And the beginning of the story, the beginning of that starts with the father being on the front porch waiting for the lost son to come home. And it ends with the father on the back porch begging for his older, self-righteous, religious, hardworking son to come in and get some cake. And, uh, and we have the same thing. This older brother in Matthew 15, or Luke 15, sorry, is working hard for the father. But as we see in his dialogue with the father, he understands there's really no relationship there. We get this clue because he says, this son of yours has been off with prostitutes. First of all, he, he doesn't even say my brother. He says, this son of yours. He's so detached him from the family that he, he doesn't have even how he talks about the son. And then there's this fact that of, we don't know that the, that the younger son is with prostitutes until the older brother lets the cat out of the bag. So here's the deal. If the older brother actually loved his father and he knew where younger brother was, which apparently he did, why didn't the older brother go after him? Why didn't the older brother go to another country and grab his sorry butt and bring him home and saying, that's not who you are. That's not what we do. Because he didn't love the father. He, would, he, he preferred, the older brother preferred to stay in the fields and work his tail off trying to earn the love of his father. And when he found out that that's not how the game works, he was filled with anger, which is often the response of religious people. It's not the gospel. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And the older brother learned it. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less, which was the, the lesson that the, the younger brother learned, okay? And this is the lesson the church in Ephesus is learning. They're, they're working. They're, they're working hard. They're doing great things. They're considering their doctrine very carefully, a good thing to do. They're not getting tired. They got like Red Bull or something. And Jesus says, uh-uh, wrong motives. There's no love here. There's no love here. Okay? This is a huge lesson for us. Huge lesson for us. I wonder how much wounding or pain do we have in our lives and how much wounding and pain we've caused people because we have not walked with love. We've gotten the get it done mode. You know, I was uh, I was um, I was thinking yesterday of striving, and the Lord brought to mind this this time where a pastor brought admonishment to me, but he didn't do it in love. He did it to try to do a quick fix, and he didn't sit down and get beside me and go, "Hey, what's going on in your life? Why are you doing this?" He didn't get beneath the surface. He just wanted to to get me in line, and I needed to get in line, you know. But there was a reason why I wasn't functioning how God called me to, to function. But it wasn't done in love. And I'm still like reeling from that conversation that he probably doesn't even remember. How much mess is in the room because we've left or other people have left first love. How do you know you've left your first love? I want to introduce you to a test a lot of people don't know. And it's, I, I'm just calling it the first Thessalonians test, okay? Um, I think we have this scripture on the screen uh, for you Bible geeks. 
here's, a, here's extra credit for you. There's no extra credit, but make you feel better if you're type A. Is contrast the church in Thessalonians or the, the church in Thessalonica with the church in Ephesus. Here's what Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, that's one, two, labor of love, three, steadfastness of hope. Now what's and I didn't put this on the screen, but you can directly contrast that with what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, I know your work, I know your labor, and I know your steadfast endurance or your patience. But he does not say that their work is a work of faith. The church in Thessalonians is working, but their work is a work that has come from faith. They're laboring, but it's a labor of love. It's a labor that's produced by love. Love is not mentioned in, in the labor or toil in the, in the letter to, to the Ephesians. And steadfastness of hope. He mentions their steadfastness twice, I think, in the letter to um, the Ephesian church, but here. And so this is a great test, is to go, are you working, it, it, you know, whatever it could be, um, in any of your calling or activity in the kingdom of God, is it a work or is it a work of faith? Your labor, is it a, is it a labor or is it a labor of love? Your patience, are you just white-knuckling it out? Or is there a hope and a peace and this like relaxedness to the patients because there's hope involved? This would be an incredible test for, for all listening is at any time in your work, in your labor, your toil, when it's hard and in, your, and in your patience. Are the three basic Christian virtues, which is right here, faith, hope, and love, right? And the greatest is love. Uh, we, we get that. Oh, thank you. I forgot I did that one. So that's the, uh, the, the test of Thessalonians, this would be great for gospel communities to go through here and kind of dive deep into uh, faith, hope, and love, and are they um, in association to these three things. Uh, lastly, uh, Jesus gives some instructions, verse 5, and there's, it's three, and then there's a consequence if they don't do it. He says, first, remember where you have fallen, from where you have fallen. Second, repent or make a U-turn, change your mind. And the third is to do the work she did at first. That's great, okay? So, um, here, here's, this, is, this is your homework. This is your, uh, your heart work, as some, some would say. Is remember, um, I think most of the people listening in, not all of them, but most people, most here, have experience with the Lord, and, and we'd say are saved or they're converted or whatever, okay? Whatever language you want to use. Um, this week, um, Try to remember what your conversion was like. What did it feel like? And, uh, and then, it's great, let me share it with somebody. You know? I mean, it doesn't, even, it doesn't have to be strange. Just like, tell your best friend or your spouse or your kids, you got kids, maybe, maybe tell them your, your conversion story or, or whatever. Or at, at the least, write it down. Just recall, I, 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 um, I, I was remembering my, um, my conversion story, and, and it was... Just, just so amazing, okay? The second is, uh, is repent. Um, what do you need to turn away from? Because Jesus says you've abandoned your first love. So you, you've abandoned it, and, and I just infer in, in here, you've been distracted. Something has lured you away. You have somehow wandered away or abandoned that first love you had with the Lord when you first believed. Well, what are some things that you need to, um, to repent of and change? And the third is do the work you did at first. Now, this is kind of crazy. I mean, this is not just, hey, just sit around and journal about it, think about it. Is you got some action to do. And Jesus says, or I'm going to remove your lampstand. Right? 
So I'm just going to, you're the Lord, we're going to take, take you at it. Okay. Um, I, I want to share, I got time, so I want to share uh, the, some of the works I did at first. Th- and this is, I think, true for a lot. I don't want to paint too broad of a brush, but for many conversion stories I've heard, this is generally what happens afterwards, is when I, I grew up in church, I was born on Thursday morning, on Sunday, literally, like three days later, I'm in the church nursery. Um, no lie, okay? I, I was a church kid, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and all there, all the time. Grateful for that. Around 12, I got kicked out of children's church and was put in the in big church. And I remember we had a pastor who, he, man, he preached the paint off the walls and he preached the gospel every week. And I remember one Sunday, he's preaching, he's preaching the gospel, and I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> like if he, if, if what he's saying is true, you know, hell's hot, forever's a long time, and I like the other option. And so he gives this like, this altar call. And uh, I just felt this like burning in my heart. And our church was at the time around 700 people. And I remember thinking, I've been here for 12 years. Everyone knows who I am. Like they, I all know my middle name. And a lot of them have like changed my diaper because I was here on like day three. And I'm, I feel like I'm going to be embarrassed if I get up and go down here because they think, what well, took them so long? It's been 12 years. But I just, for some reason, I had to get up. And I, I was the only person to walk down the aisle that day. And I met with this guy, he was an Air Force guy, his name is Mike, and he prayed with me and he gave me his cell phone number. And, um, and I thought for such a long time that I got saved whenever I came down to the aisle and shook the guy's hand and prayed and that that was the moment. But what I now know, having studied this, is that God saved me in my seat. And because he saved me, something happened in my heart, and my heart began to burn and come alive. And I was like, I got to do something. And I stood up and walked down, and we did this formal prayer. But we could have prayed, and I still would have, been, could have not prayed. I still would have been saved. And that's generally how conversion works is, is, you know, God saves you. And then there's this, like, feeling that comes afterwards. What happened after that was crazy. I had this intense desire to read the Bible, to pray, and to be with other Christians. And I didn't know if that was a thing, but I just, I remember asking my parents for a Bible, and they're like, no, you're not going to waste money on a Bible, you're not going to read it, you know, and you know, you can borrow ours, whatever, and, and it makes it sound bad, but they, they weren't evil. It was just like, there's a lot of Bibles around, use one of these, and I'm like, no, I want my own Bible, and, and so I stole a Bible. <laughs> I did, and it was a Promise Keepers New Testament Bible, and it had a, a reading plan in the, in the box with check. Marks, which I loved. And so I, Act 12, started reading, the, reading Matthew, Matthew 1, and I would check mark. And I just, I, I had a hunger for the Word of God so much, I stole a Bible so I could read it. Okay? God forgive me, you know. Let's do the thing. So, um, and then after that, I, I remember um, I, I, I borrowed uh, a praise and worship tape from my mom. And then after dinner, I had my own room, after dinner, Instead of doing my homework, I'd go to my room, I'd shut the door, I'd turn the lights off, and I'd play this praise and worship tape, and I would just get on my face, and I would just pray for everybody who came to my mind, like for hours. And then, like, 10 o'clock, and parents like, you need to go to bed. I was like, okay. And I had, like, turned the tape over several times and listened to it over and over again. And I just had this incredible, like, crazy hunger and passion to worship, to pray, to read the Bible. And every time the church was open, I wanted to be there. 
they had a prayer meeting on Saturday nights at five, and the only people who went to it were like 16 above. And I would show up, and I'd, they had this like prayer booklet that they, they pray for this every day, and I'd sit in the back, and I could like barely stay awake, and I fell asleep a few times, but I'm 12, give me some grace. And I sit in the back row, they didn't the lights, the awful idea for a 12 year old in a prayer meeting. And, and I would just, I, this was the environment, is I'd hear these 60 and 70 year olds just like, some of them is a Pentecostal church, and they're like, moaning and crying and weeping and sometimes it's silent and and then at the end they'd all come forward and take communion and they were all like who's this 12 year old here at the prayer meeting with all the old people and that was just my experience is is those were the works i did at first when i got saved i didn't care what was on tv i didn't care what was on netflix wasn't around yet but if it was i wouldn't have cared i just i hungered what theologians would call that is the objective evidences of salvation. Reading the Bible, worshiping, praying, being at a prayer meeting, fasting, giving, serving, doing all those things don't um, get you saved, quote unquote. But they are often the objective evidences that often occur after God has done something in your heart, not by any of your effort. And the Ephesian church forgot this. Somewhere the wires got switched, I think. They had a first love at first. And they got on that works train and they went all in. God bless them. But somewhere they forgot that the works they did came from being saved. Somewhere they begin to think, oh, we're, maybe we're doing these things to get saved. And Jesus says, uh-uh, that's not how we do it. I wonder if that's your experience, and if it is, it's okay. You can remember, you can repent, and you can start to put into action the things you did at first. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this great word that you gave in the first century, and um, it's still alive today. It still hits me today. It convicts me. I'm not exempt from it. We each ask for your help more than anything, God. We need your help. For those listening who hear that explanation of a conversion story and they can't relate yet because they haven't felt that or experienced that, I ask that right now, today, as they're listening, whether they're here or listening in their car in another state, that you would do what you did with me and you just save them in their seat right now. That you would awaken their heart, awaken them, surround them with your love and with your fire, with your passion. That you would declare over them that they are your beloved son or daughter, not because of anything they're doing, but just because you are rich in love and you are good to all and you're slow to anger. Or for those here who've been walking with you for a while and and maybe they have strayed away from their first love. And they've, their faith has just, the glow of their faith has, has dimmed. And maybe they've become lukewarm. What I ask today, you would blow on the fires of their heart. And you would stir those coals. And that you would ignite a greater flame. Lord, we, we thank you for the gospel those of us who are the younger brother and those of us who are the older brother. Thank you that regardless of which 
child we are. That the same Father treats us. That there's nothing we could do to make you love us less. And there's nothing we could ever do to make you love us more. Help us to find rest in that. To find delight in that. And finally, Lord, we ask that you would mark this congregation to be a congregation of love. Lord, the last thing we want to do is to get busy doing things for you or in your name, but apart from you. We don't have the strength. We don't have the ambition to do that. We want to love you and do everything from that place. Help us, Lord. It's in your name we pray.